Um, as you know, we're doing our Advent series, uh, Coming Into Land. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll have the finale. And uh, you know, we're just obviously playing on the whole Christmas kind of feel to it. For those who are over-religious, no, we don't believe in Santa Claus. Um, but we are just using the, the kind of graphics just to describe how the world looks at Christmas. And it's all about presence and uh, peace to all men and, you know, let peace come to the earth and we, they leave out Jesus. And so we're really just unveiling the reason for the season. So let's get going. And uh, Luke chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, open them with me. Otherwise, read along. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the customs of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, and he praised God, and he said the following, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people of Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And it's an amazing text. And in fact, throughout many liturgy, worship moments throughout the centuries, these, these last few words have been uttered in churches all through the world and, and, as I said, throughout the centuries. And it's interesting, the light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And the thing is, though, is, is that that's not all that was said. And often that's how we read the Bible as Christians, don't we? It's like, uh, what's his name, Franklin, the President of the United States, Benjamin Franklin, who actually took out some of the words of the Bible because he didn't like them. And we do the same thing because even in the secular uh, society as well as in Christendom and in the churches, that's where we stop. And everything is all this kind of glorious, kind of touchy-feely, let's all be nice. But actually there's some words that come after that. It says, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then this sentence, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, we know that that's not kind of found in our worship music, is it? And in how we do things. It's not the focus. It's not the focus of worship. It's not what we would like to see happen. We like the sweetness and the peace and the, the coming of Jesus and silent, silent night, holy night, and, and all of those good things. But it's actually not that simple. And you know what happens when a surgeon goes in? If somebody's got a growth of cancer in them or whatever else, the surgeon goes in with a scalpel. It's not pleasant. If you've seen on TV and on the movies and the way, and even if you've probably seen a proper operation, I know some people are doctors here, and you see the scalpel going in, and as they, they cut and the blood and the guts and they pull the guts out, that a friend at, um, at, at the office or a colleague at the office who's just had a back operation, and they've replaced one of her vertebrae with one of these prosthetic vertebras. But they actually go through the stomach, and they have to pull out all your organs. And she was saying, like it's a month later, and she's still bloated because everything had been moved to get through to her back. It's not pleasant, is it? But when the surgeon goes in, ultimately, as much as it feels worse initially, you get better. Because you, you cut out something, or in, in her case, replace the vertebra, and now she's doing a lot better. Or, or maybe you, you, you go to a therapist, 
And at first they remind you of all the pain of your past. You know, maybe you've got a, a father like me and you've, you've got all these crazy things that are going on in your life, like, like Ella. And she's going to have to go to a therapist one day and, and have to deal with all of these things that her father did to her. But at first there's, there's the pain of the past that's brought up in order to deal with it. Often gets worse before it gets better. So it's not that simple, right? So Matthew 10 tells us that Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. <laughs> I came to bring a sword. Again, you don't often hear that preached of, do you? Well, we say Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but he also came with a sword and not to bring peace. Hmm. Interesting comment. Jesus actually brings conflict into our lives. He brings conflict among people and within people. And we're going to go through each one of those because among people, what happens is, is people who don't like Jesus and oppose Jesus, there's going to be a conflict between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. Or within people where there's things that Jesus wants to do, he brings out the sword and he comes in and he wants to take the scalpel, but do we allow him to do what he needs to do? And often it's only through that process that peace comes. It's through the process of conflict, the process of pain, that transformation comes and peace and only the peace that God can bring. So John 3 verse 19 says, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but the people have loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And you, you saw in the context of verse 35 that I just read out of Luke was that our thoughts and our hearts are revealed before Jesus. And often we don't like that. I mean, you know, when you're a teenager and you look at the mirror and there's this pimple on your face, you don't like looking at it. And it's the same thing is that when we come and we get, come into the presence of Jesus, he exposes the stuff within us and he asks us to deal with it. And he pulls out the scalpel and do we say, yes, Jesus, or do we walk away and not allow him to deal with us? Because he exposes all of these things, the gossiping at the church office. It's so easy to get pulled in while you're around the coffee station about your boss or about somebody or the corruption that we see in our country, and easy enough to kind of move into that space, or the racism that our country just seems to never get past, and the world just seems to continually perpetuate. Because somebody's different from me, I don't like them, and so therefore I'm going to come against them, or speak against them. But when we live like Jesus, it's actually Jesus in us that often people want to oppose, because they don't like him. They don't want him in their life. Is this, when, what happens is often with us as Christians, though, is the other side is where there's a pressure to conform. And I remember I was in grade 11, grade 12, and I had uh, these two friends, and we'd gone away um, to, to one of the guy's spots. He, his father had a spot on the Hardy Baseball Dam, and we went water skiing, and it was a whole bunch of fun. But the one guy and myself just clashed over some things. And then I kind of felt bad about it, and, and he wanted to start smoking. So he, he had these cigarettes that he had bought. And I, as, as you know, mom, if you knew me growing up, my mom smoked and I hated it. It was like the worst thing. I used to ask her to give up, and she finally did, actually. And God did an amazing work. She literally stopped overnight when a pastor, I think, from Zambia or Malawi had prayed for her. And so here I, here I was, absolutely hating this thing. But in order to conform, in order to be accepted, I took the cigarette and started smoking it. And that's not against people who smoke. I mean, I know in the 80s it was like you were a demon if you smoked. I mean, come on. You know, it's like crazy. Nothing wrong with smoking on one level. At the same time, yeah, there is. It's going, it's going to damage your, your health. But then no one talks about the gluttony and us overfeeding ourselves and eating the wrong things. Do they? It's 
All the same stuff, isn't it? So the point that I'm trying to make, though, is, is that I, I felt the pressure to conform because in this particular context, I was having this conflict with this individual. And then afterwards, I thought, what am I doing? Why am I actually stepping into that space? And as a church, we are going to be called, uh, we're going to come up against these things where do we conform to what the world wants us to be? And I'm going to get into more of that in a moment. Or do we stand up for what is right? And so don't be surprised that there's no room for the in, at the end when we stand up for what we believe in Jesus. See, our society is just becoming like the Roman society where you have these gods. It's okay to have your own private faith and it's okay to worship your own God as you want to. But in those moments, what happens is, is we come into the public space and now we actually have to exalt the leaders that are in spaces. Think of Putin. Think of Hitler. Think of all these leaders across the world today. You can't speak against them in public. You've actually got to worship them in some form or another. And it may not be this, you know, hands up in the air on our knees, but that's what we are called to do. And if you read history, you will see um, all of those Roman emperors, they brought worship to themselves and not to the one who only deserves it, and that's Jesus. The point is, is when we refuse to participate, what's going to happen is, is we will get labeled as intolerant. How can you say that? How can you say Jesus is the only way to the Father? You guys are very narrow-minded and intolerant of things. And so what you will be is you will actually cause problems for society. You are, as Christians, you are the ones who are, are coming against the social order of society. And we see that increasing, don't we? We saw that in the Roman days, and then it kind of all got better, and then Christians became you know, the popular thing to be. And then now what's happening is it's starting to shift again. And we just look at the, the war in Israel and against Hamas. I mean, the fact that people are, are, are supporting the, and I'm not an Israeli supporter just like blanketly, but the fact that they can not come against what has happened in that region is bizarre for me. Anyway, the point is, is, is that when we are told that we, when we, when we, we have this exclusive belief around what we believe, people are going to come against us. It's going to cause conflict. And people don't like that because Jesus is the ultimate God. And that's what happened was there was no more practicing of uh, sacrificing at the temples. So now it's like, well, why don't you know? In fact, that's idol worship now. And so there was this, again, this in the Roman times, but it's no different from what's happening to us in our day to day. And in those days, Christians got disinherited. They got left out. They didn't get the jobs they wanted. And that's what's starting to happen in our world today. Who would have thought 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, that in America, Christians and Jewish people would get excluded from these kind of things. But that's what's happening even in a so-called Christian country like the United States. And the thing is, the, the gospel is going to bring hostility. Because when we say that Jesus is the way, and people don't want to hear that, they're going to come against us. And like I say, they are going to call us intolerant. See, we as human beings, we've got this innate ability, or it's part of who we are, our kind of sinful nature, who we are, we justify ourselves. We don't want to be under somebody. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And you try to stop a child from doing something that they want to do, and they become angry, and they become frustrated. And we look at that in children, but we see that within ourselves. And so everything about Jesus says that we're not our own, that we are bought with a price, and there's the text. The 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. We were bought with a price. Our bodies are not our own. 
And if we understand that, then what we will do is we will present our bodies as living sacrifices to God for His service. And not just go, well, I want to do what I want to do and I don't want to be controlled by God. But actually give ourselves to Him. Like I said, not surprising that people get mad at Jesus and mad at us who follow Jesus. Because when we identify with Jesus, we understand that as Christians we are flawed. And we've got to watch because sometimes I think we come across in a way where we become across religious. If somebody has chosen a certain way of life, let them choose that. They don't have Holy Spirit inside of them. How can you expect them to follow the ways of Jesus? So there's a loving acceptance of them, but not necessarily of what they do. But if we walk in a way that actually loves on people rather than judges them because there is only one judge. The Bible says don't judge one another, but yes, discern the spirits. So when you discern and you understand those things, passing judgment is you, you say that's what that person is and that's it. But when we love people into the kingdom, that's all we're called to do rather than being hypocritic bigots. And the reality is we are hypocritical, aren't we? Because we always point at other things, but within ourselves we do the same things. The thing is, though, what Simeon is saying is offensive <laughs> because it's Jesus himself and the expression of Jesus in us that is going to cause this conflict among people. And we will either be peacemakers or what will happen is, is we will have opposition. And it's this, this kind of ebbs and flows of our Christian life that we need to watch. Psalm 120 verse 7 says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And the reality is there will be people that when we speak the truth, when we speak the gospel, they will war against us because of what the gospel means. Now, we all know that Mary, probably one of the most admirable, um, attractive personalities within the Bible. I mean, the mother of Jesus. And we, and we heard, I can't remember who preached on it. It was either Willem or, 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 um, or Bruce, just around how beautiful Mary responded to the gospel. And what's interesting here is, is that Mary, at one point, she was so confused about Jesus and who he was. Now, we heard that she would, yes, let it be, and I, I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah, and this is amazing. And, and we all know the, the story and what happened. But she actually, at some point, started to actually push against the mission of Jesus. Well, where, Gary? Well, let's have a look. Mark 3.21, when the family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, and they said, you're out of your mind. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone to call him. And then Jesus responds, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at the, those seated and circled around him. He says, these are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Hmm. So here you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was like, yes, how many of us have got saved? And we're like, yes, Jesus, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do this. And then about three or four months later or a year later, we're like, hey, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe this is a bit weird. Maybe this isn't what I, I've been called to. But actually what would have happened was, <laughs> I'm sure Mary must have been really hurt by Jesus' response. I mean, imagine coming, you think you're trying to help your son and he tells you to foot sack. I mean, that was the Greek that, that, she, that he used in the, in, the, in the original translation. But they came to take him by force. They told him, he, they thought he was out his, uh, totally out of his mind. The beautiful thing is, is that Jesus never rejected his mom. Because on the cross, the text is up there in John. He says to Mary and to John, here is your son. And to John, here is your mother. Someone just put the alarm on. 
And so in our process of standing our ground, let's not break down relationships. <laughs> yes, Lord. But like I said, Mary is just like us. That's where the Catholic Church does get it wrong. Mary was not divine. She was human just like us, and in her frailty made many mistakes just like us. And thank goodness for God's grace and for his mercy. But you can imagine what would have happened at that moment at the cross. Everything that Jesus promised, everything she thought when the angel came and she felt pregnant and went through all of those processes, she must have thought, my dreams, everything that I thought was going to be, how many of us have felt like that? Where God has spoken promises over us and it's just not happening, but then that sword comes and passes through us and we go, but God, how can this be? If you were God, why did you allow this to happen? And we can keep, there's so many examples that I'm sure I could bring up. Everything from losing a loved one to a relationship breaking. No matter how hard you try, somebody doesn't want to be with you and be around you or whatever it might be. And there's this inner conflict that starts to happen. And there's a great pain that comes because the sword has come in. And it's, and it's come into your soul and it's cutting. And I'm sure Mary must have felt like that. Not, in that. not only in that moment where Jesus kind of rebuked her, but also on the cross where he died. And now all of a sudden, everything seems to have been lost. And the reality is, is when the sword comes within, we start to fight and we start to struggle because God says, Gary, that thing needs to come out. Actually, that room of your heart, you've not allowed me into. And I'm sure there are people here this morning that that's, the Holy Spirit's already speaking to you and he's putting his finger on and saying, Mr. X, Mrs. Y, Gary, this is what you need to do. You need to allow me to come in with the sword and to take out what needs to be taken out. The interesting thing about the sword, though, is when we do our Revelation series next week, Revelation chapter 1, next week, did I say next week? Next year. Jesus comes in, Roma, in, in Romans chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, and what has he got in his mouth? And Revelation 19, what has he got? So Jesus is still coming with the sword. He will still come with the sword. And he comes to cut away. The thing is, are we going to allow him to cut away those things? Justin shared this on Facebook a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago. And it's this guy, Kurt. I thought it said Bonachat, but it's Bonachut. And he says, uh, did you know that if you put 100 black ants and 100 red ants into a jar, nothing will happen? But actually, if you shake it up, they become enemies and they start to destroy one another. And obviously, the, the ultimate kind of um, point of the story is the same thing happens in human society. So before we start to attack each other, maybe we should think who's actually shaking the jar. Now, what am I trying to say there? Maybe Jesus is turning over tables in your life. Because if you go read John chapter 2, what does Jesus do in the temple? He goes in and he turns over tables and he takes out a whip. Well, he really made the whip outside. Very intentional, very deliberate. You've made my house a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, right? Well, what happens straight after he goes into the temple? He goes to the wedding and the new wine starts to flow. When God wants to take us into a new season, he often turns over tables in our lives so that we can be ready for the new wine that's about to flow. And if we don't allow him to do that, we miss all of what he's actually preparing us for. And often the purpose, not often, most times, the purpose of that conflict within is to create the only is to create peace only God can give us. 
And if we don't go through that process, it won't happen. And here's something I've learned in my, my now, sure, 18 years of, of ministry, full-time ministry. No, it's longer. 20 years. Wow. 20 years of full-time ministry is that what often happens within, especially church communities, but it's not just within church communities, it's within families as well, is often God is doing something in somebody, taking out the sword, and he's taking the sword to the soul. And what happens is that person doesn't allow that process to happen to transform them. And so the conflict within becomes a conflict without. And they start to take a sword out to those around them that love them. I want to implore, whoops. <laughs> I want to implore you. When Jesus comes in with the sword to deal with the stuff in your heart, when your stuff's been exposed before him, allow him to. Don't allow it to break relationships around you that actually love you and care for you and want to walk with you into an inheritance together that God has. Because you know what? The only thing you take into heaven is each other. The only thing I take is my relationships with the people that I love and what I've invested in them and what they've invested in me. So let's not break relationships because God is doing something in us and he's turned over tables in us. And when, we, when that happens, we reach out and we lash out at the people around us and destroy relationships. So R.C. Ryle says the following. The child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as his inward peace. When you put your faith in Christ, many struggles are ended, or nearly so. The struggle to prove yourself, to find an identity, to have a meaning in life that you can handle suffering, to find true satisfaction. All of these fights become resolved. However, a whole new set of struggles are touched off by faith in Christ. A real Christian is known not only by new peace, but also by a new conflict. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with Christian marriage services. They are buried with Christian funerals when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion or their spiritual strife. And exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded. His apostles preached because true Christianity is a fight. Now, there's two ways that we deal with this conflict. Through repentance and forgiveness and through submission. Those are the only two ways we do this. And both are amazing Christian gifts, both for ourselves and for one another. When you put antiseptic on a wound, like I don't know if you saw JP, he's got those grays. You must ask, ask him what he did. He's got this nice grays. We used to get them playing rugby, like in the middle of winter when the grass is, and you tackle somebody, and then you, you wake up the next morning, your sheet's stuck to your thigh. Have you, I don't know if anybody's experienced that. And then you've got to pull it off, and you start again. But what you've got to do is you've got to take your dad's aftershave and put it on. <laughs> 
But there's those, when you used to get, Louise was a, was a, a provincial gymnast and she used to get these calluses and these um, uh, blisters. And what you do is you stick a needle in and you take out all the, the, the fluid and then you push, what is it, methylate or something. And, yeah, I mean, but, but what happens, it heals quickly, doesn't it? But that's what, exactly what repentance and forgiveness does. In the moment, it stings like anything because you have to give up your own self-righteousness, your own pride. Both of those require you to go, actually, I'm wrong. Actually, I am letting go of something that I feel the right. Forgiveness is giving away. I've got the right for justice, and I, I let it go. And repentance says, well, oh, I don't want to say sorry. You know how that works with kids. Stop fighting with your sister and say sorry. Sorry. Well, that didn't really sound like you were sorry. Because we have to admit things and acknowledge things that we don't want to. The reality is there's no way to the peace of God without repentance and forgiveness. Now, Belisa's is here. Now, these are his words. I want to give him credit for them. Obviously, this book is about Tim Keller, but this, he posted something on Facebook a few weeks ago that really hit a chord with me. Because when you study throughout history, wicked people, what you find mostly is there's a common thread. They are obsessed with how they've been wronged. Are you obsessed with how you've been wronged? We've all been wronged. And you know what? We will be wronged again. And if you're not sure about it, just come and speak to me afterwards. I'll wrong you, and then you can understand what it'll feel like. I mean, Hitler, why do you think Hitler started his war against the Jews? He felt wronged by them as a result of World War I. Go read the story. Now all of a sudden, okay, I'm obsessed with how I've been wronged by these people. I am going to take them out. And that's what we do in our own lives. See, when we're wrong, we've got two things. We either internalize it, and it becomes part of who we are, and especially against those like Hitler, those who've done wrong against us, or what we do is we release others by forgiving them. Otherwise, what happens with unforgiveness, it becomes the seed in our hearts that germinates in the dark corners of our hearts and becomes bitter and angry and starts to lash out at people, of, at, uh, certainly the people close to you, but also people in this world. And the crazy thing is it produces the fruit that found it. In other words, we become the embodiment of the sins committed against us and often way worse. Because what you behold, you become. What you allow in your heart to grow will produce the fruits that you've now put seeds in your heart. If you put an apple seed into the ground, you are not going to produce oranges, I promise you. And so when you put a, a seed of resentment and bitterness into your heart, that's what will start to be the fruit in your life. So how do we deal with this? Well, if you find yourself going in a loop with these people that have wronged you, and you keep going around, and every time you see them, you feel like you, whatever. I'm telling you now, it's a trap that will take you down a pathway in life, and you will become a bitter, omgekrap person, as Alexander calls it. You will be raked over backwards as older you get. But when we, if we fight for forgiveness, we actually free ourselves. It is a fight. It's not just, oh, Lord, help me forgive. No, no. It's a de constant decision. We think repentance and forgiveness is a moment. It's not. It's a journey. And it's a process. Because when you are cut and you've got a wound, it's going to be sore for a while. And as much as you go, okay, I'm putting antiseptic on and it's stinging a bit and I'm going to put a plaster on. You've got to keep doing it until it heals. 
often it takes time for it to heal. So forgiveness looks like that there's not this kind of incessant feelings of anger and hurt, but there's actually genuine love for the people that have wronged you. And actually, you're not happy when, or when something bad happens to them. Yeah, you see, God got them. Not like that. Uh, I don't know if you saw in the newspapers, the MP of Turkey stood up and said, Israel must die and they must all get killed. <laughs> he fell down dead with a heart attack. Like there's, uh, <laughs> you yeah. And then not only is that, but you actually start to pray for people that have wronged you and pray for the best for them and the blessings over them. And then what happens is, yes, you might remember, and it's important that you do remember, because sometimes people are the narcissists and you don't really want them in your life, but you can deal with the, the, the hurt that you've got. So I'm not saying just go and reconcile with everybody who just wants you in their life to hurt you. But what I am saying is that then it's just a scar rather than a septic wound that keeps getting opened and now got gangrene in it and starts to take over your life. And secondly, the conflict of submission. Are we like Jesus where we go, not my will, but yours be done? Can we get to that space? Because Jesus showed us how to do that. And that's often only when peace comes, when we say, okay, Lord, I don't know why it's going on. I don't know why you're on a cross now dying. You were supposed to do all of this. I don't know why I'm where I'm at because you said, but now it's not happening. I've heard that many times in my life. If you ask me right now, am I where I want to be in terms of my life right now? No. Jesus, why am I having still to work in the corporate world? I want to be full-time here. I want to be studying theology. Studying for revelation is I just got all these emotions inside of me going, God, I want to spend more time doing this, but I, I know for the season, this is not what God's got for me. Are we able to go, okay, God, your will, your way, and your timing? The thing is, is when we allow Holy Spirit to come in and we start to understand this, we actually go way deeper in our relationship with Jesus and with one another. And the peace that transcends all understanding comes. I'm not talking about seeking suffering. I mean, those people who go and seek hurt and whatever, that's really unhelpful. But the point is, is if we go through that, and I know Justin came up, and for those who don't know what Justin does, he, he, he's a biokinetist, but specializes in brain and spinal injuries. And 94.7, we tow some of these, these people who have been victims to, to these moments. And I can guarantee you he could stand up here and he could say there are some that become so bitter about what's happened to them that they're never really healed in any way. And then you've got the people like Gabriel who broke his neck motocrossing, who rides the 94.7 on an arm bicycle and tows a guy behind him who's got a brain and spinal injury. A little bit of a difference, isn't there, in attitude? That's why I love the, you know, the only disability in life is a bad attitude. 100%. And so what do we do when these things happen to us? Do we allow them to become our identity? Or do we allow the sword of Jesus to come in and to cut away those things? And through repentance, through forgiveness, and through submission to his will, allow him to come that actually a peace and a joy and a strength and a power starts to come into us, which only comes through the process of conflict. See, we learn from Jesus. Because Jesus did this. How do we resolve the conflicts without and within? The way Jesus did. He went to the cross. And he took on himself the ultimate sword for us. And he was forsaken. And he was alone. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24, when 
when uh, Adam and Eve are, 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 are forced out of the Garden of Eden and everyone thought, well, God chased them out like a, get out of here, you naughty kids. No, no, he, he knew that if they stayed there, they would eat of the tree of life and remain in that state forever. And so he gets them out of there, gets them away from the tree of life, and he closes it with what? A sword. And the point is, is this whole thing is the wages of sin is death. And that's why the Old Testament is all about the cutting and the slicing and the slicing of animals in representation of taking on or covering our sins until Jesus comes and finally does it. And he was forsaken. He took on the penalty of sin, our sin, and then what starts to happen is he's utterly forsaken so that we don't have to go through what we're going through alone. Why? Because Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And then he says, I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I will not be alone for he is with me. Jesus was cut off, as it says in Isaiah 53, because of our transgressions. And the question is, with all of this stuff, is the battle that he fought is way greater than anything that we will ever go through. So the fact is, we will not go through it alone. You know, Simeon explains this well. He's told us there will be hostility towards us because of Jesus within us. And there will be always that hostility. How do we deal with it? We don't go with the sword. We don't go violently and, and take our own because we want to be uh, to, to receive justice. And it's always going to be a painful struggle in our lives because Jesus wants access to those things that are actually cancerous to our lives. That's what Christmas te teaches us, not to be filled with self-pity. Oh, why am I in this place? Why am I not doing this? Just full of bitterness and resentment and hurt. Because otherwise we become the beast that hurt us. I don't want to be a beast to Louise, to my kids, to anybody else. And despite that pain, if we allow God to come in and do that, well, actually true peace comes. Because I repent. You know, I... When we planted the church, and there was a process that happened when we planted our church, Lifehouse. And I hadn't done things the way I should have, the way I would have liked to have done them. And about within a year of me, I was preaching on repentance, and I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, yeah, but Gary, you, you need to go repent for some of the stuff that you did. And I went, you guys know him, Ashley and Nadine, Nadine, Nadine Bell, and I sat them down and I said, I'm so sorry for the way that we left the church. And Ash, and I don't know if you'll ever listen to this, but he responded in the most gracious way that I could ever imagine. And he said, Gary, thank you. It's done. Thank you for your repentance. Here's my forgiveness. No, oh, but you should have and you shouldn't have. Just boom, game over. I was like almost shocked by the simplicity of that moment. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, two weeks ago. We've had a number of people leave this community and take out the sword against me. And very hurtful, very painful, and very, well, how did that happen? And not working through the process. And I got a text a couple of weeks ago from somebody, I'm not going to mention their names. And they said, I'm so sorry for the way we left. It was totally unfair and, and, and really just ugly the way we did it. And I want to ask you for your forgiveness. And 
I was automatically taken back to that moment where I had gone to Ashbow and I said, I'm sorry. So part of me wanted to go, yeah, it was really painful and you should have and you should. No, no. You are unreservedly forgiven. Now go and thrive in God and the kingdom. Are we able to do that? So this preach, it's prescribed because it's part of a book from Tim Keller. But God gives me this particular thing to do. And in this moment, this is what happens. Do we allow the pains and the wounds of the past to define us? Or do we allow Jesus to take us into the peace that transcends all understanding by allowing through repentance and forgiveness and submission to his will, his way, and his timing, take us into the kingdom of God and live it out in the way that we should? See, that deeper peace is not attainable any other way. Let's not become the beast that wounded us. But let's trounce the beast through love and compassion, through repentance and forgiveness. Let's do it.